Hello, this is Rob Massey, and welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode three, Shock and Awe, Retelling Israel's Story. In this episode, we're going to see how the disciples of Jesus, following his example, claimed Israel's story and subverted parts of it to provide a different perspective on the character of God. So let's jump in. N.T. Wright claimed in Jesus and the Victory of God that when Jesus told parables, he was subversively, quote, retelling the story of Israel, end quote. I think the same model for retelling Israel's story occurred throughout the Christian scriptures. In addition to the parables, other actions of the early church, some of which were traditionalized, could be understood as a retelling of the story. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and taught them, it was reminiscent of Moses teaching the people of Israel the law and feeding them with manna in the wilderness. When Jesus walked on the water, he was showing his dominance on the chaotic waters, uh, like the creation and uh, at the Red Sea. And when he met Mary Magdalene in the garden after his resurrection, she, supposing him to be the gardener, this was conjuring up the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, a meeting that occurred only after Adam fell asleep and had his side pierced. These are just a few examples, very easy examples, of the retelling. Bottom line, the life that Christ lived out, his actions throughout his ministry, these were seen by his disciples as connected to what had already occurred and what was anticipated by the Hebrew Scriptures. Israel's story came to life in the life of Christ. In addition to Jesus' action and his parables being a retelling of Israel's story, his interpretation of Israel's scriptures helped retell the narrative. Notice how Jesus set priority on scripture. For example, Matthew 19 on marriage and divorce, choosing to prioritize Genesis 3.24 over Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Jesus also redacted words and phrases to change the tone of a passage, as I detailed during episode 2, regarding his quote of Isaiah 61, removing that part about vengeance on Israel's enemies. Finally, Jesus challenged passages on anger and lust, oaths, and retaliation in his comments often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, using the formula, quote, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, end quote. One example from this passage is on retaliation. He says that Moses' words, quote, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, end quote, is no longer valid, but rather we are not to resist evil. My point here is not to open up a can of worms about inerrancy and inspiration, but to show that Jesus regularly challenged certain passages from the Hebrew Scripture, and by doing so, he reframed Israel's story. That seems to me indisputable. For us, people not steeped in Israel's storyline, we may miss the subtle nuances in language and the illusion of the narrative that we find in the New Testament. Think of it like this. If you are a Tolkien fan, a Lord of the Rings fan, and I make a comment about some place being like Mordor, or having someone having the character of Sauron, 
You're not going to think I'm paying the place or the person a compliment. So when we are reading the various books of the Bible, we need to slow down and look for these allusions in the text. It's some of the richest kind of study for me. So with that in mind, let's look at one of Israel's most significant and tragic stories and see if we can identify a New Testament retelling and see how that retelling informs our perspective on the character of God. First, let's get some background on a major theme in Israel's story. That is, their slavery and their deliverance from Egypt and the gift of the law that helped define them as a people. So Moses delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt in Exodus 12 through 15. They flee to Mount Sinai by the way of the Red Sea. This is the place where Moses was initially instructed by God to go tell Pharaoh to let his people go. When they get there in Exodus 19, three months after leaving Egypt, they are told not to go near it on threat of death. Then three days after arriving, some kind of epiphany or theophany of the presence of God occurs on the mountain. In Exodus 20, God speaks out the Ten Commandments so that they can all hear. The people don't have to be told twice. They don't want to go any closer. They say, Moses, you go up. You get the words. Moses goes up with some of the elders to get the fuller message from God. Apparently, he had more to say than just the Ten Commandments. It's interesting to note that some of the rabbis taught that the people at the base of Mount Sinai contained representatives from the 70 nations. According to Israel, after the Tower of Babel incident, the world was divided up into 70 nations. Rabbi Yohanan in the Midrash said that, quote, God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 languages so that all the nations should understand, end quote. That's found in Shemot Midrash Rabbah. Five, nine, for those looking for extra credit. We'll pick up on that little tidbit later. Moses and the elders go up to the mountain in Exodus 24. Then Moses goes up further by himself. There he receives further instruction about the tabernacle or the holy place where God is to dwell, the priest's garments and the general qualifications for the priests the offerings that are to be made in the tabernacle, and a re-emphasis on the importance of the Sabbath. These passages to me are kind of like the flyover states. We don't recognize their importance until, you know, we need grain and food and all the other things that they provide. Uh, so this, these are essential passages to study. God conveniently provided all these directives that he gave to Moses on two tables of stone. Think a portable version of the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, for those of you who have visited the Louvre uh, and you've seen the size of Hammurabi's code, it's about seven feet tall, you know why Moses needed some uh, portability in his uh, tablets. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Exodus 32, the people were growing impatient. Moses has been gone 40 days and the people wanted to get on with their lives. They pressed Aaron, that's Moses' older brother, to build them two golden calves which he reluctantly did. According to Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, quote, the people sat down to eat and drink, then rose up to play, end quote. That means that they had a party, they ate too much, they drank too much, and then they had ceremonial sacred sex, 
something that the gods that they were familiar with would endorse. Moses came down the mountain, basking in the glory of his time with God, to find a significant number of the people had turned to idols. He heard the party going on and do something was afoot. When he arrived on the scene, he was so bent out of shape, he took the tables of stone and smashed them against the idols. After an awkward conversation with his brother, he does something a little disturbing. I was with him up to this point. He asked the people, quote, who is on the Lord's side, end quote. And we need to be careful when we start doing that kind of saber rattling as Christian leaders or any religious leader. Religion is a very powerful force and needs to be handled carefully. So I was with him up to this point. But now he says, who's on the Lord's side? Men from the family of Levi claimed that they were. They strapped on their swords and they proceeded to kill 3,000 of their family members that were involved in the idol worship. That's hard for me to take. If I show up at a family reunion and the mixed bag of beliefs that is my family, and I'm sure it's the same case with you all, they're all there together. I can't imagine killing those cousins, brothers, and uncles because they hold what I consider anti-God positions. But these guys started killing and didn't stop until 3,000 people were dead. I'll try to redeem this story a little later. But what Moses says is that these sons of Levi, because of the actions that they took, they were to be ordained into the service of God that day. That's disturbing. So let's look at how this story was rewritten by the disciples of Jesus. Forty days after the resurrection of Jesus, he permanently departed physically from his disciples. His last directive to them was to stay in Jerusalem. It was there that they were going to receive power from on high. He claimed that they would be able to witness throughout all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1 and 2 reflect on this last physical encounter and also on some kind of an epiphany or a manifestation of the presence of God, not dissimilar to that which occurred at Mount Sinai. There was this thunderous sound of rushing wind. Then fire appeared, and then that fire split and rested on each of them. At this point, Luke says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. If we had time here, which we don't, we could review the phrase in Luke and in Acts and see that every time someone is filled with the Spirit, they speak inspired words. For example, Elizabeth and Mary in Luke 1. And also notice that when people didn't believe, they were mute. Like Zacharias, when he didn't believe the words of the angel, he couldn't speak until his son John was born. Later, when John was born, he was filled with the Spirit, it says, and he prophesied about the role that his son would play in the kingdom of God. Anyway, these 120 at Pentecost, men and women, all received the Holy Spirit and began to, quote, speak in other tongues, end quote. Since this occurred on the Feast of Pentecost, remember Pentecost was a festival of Israel that occurred 50 days following the Feast of Passover. So get the timeline. Jesus dies at Passover. He resurrects on that first day of the week. He spends 40 days 
with his disciples. They pray in the upper room for 10 days, and now it's the Feast of Pentecost. 50 days has elapsed. And remember that Passover, it commemorated the night that Israel was delivered from Egypt and began their journey to Mount Sinai. So, there in Jerusalem, to celebrate this feast, at the same time that the disciples were upstairs in this room praying, there were, according to Acts 2 verse 5, quote, devout men gathered from every nation under heaven, end quote. When the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spilled out into the crowded streets, and these men heard them speaking in their own language. That's weird. According to verse 11, they heard in their, quote, own tongues the mighty works of God, end quote. So up to this point, look at some of the parallels that are developing between the story of Israel at Mount Sinai and the story of the church in Acts 2. First, there is this theophany where the atmosphere is changed. There's sounds of rushing wind, which normally occur during a storm. This is what happens in the upper room with the disciples. Notice that the theophany at Sinai had peals of thunder and lightning and darkness. This is one way that the prophets often depicted the presence of God. Second, notice that fire was present. In Exodus 19, verse 18, God descended on Mount Sinai, quote, in fire, end quote. The disciples had fire appear on each of them. Finally, based on the Midrash, quote, God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 languages so that all the nation should understand, end quote. The fire in the upper room split onto each of those gathered, and they began to speak glorifying words of God that, quote, devout men from every nation heard in their own language, end quote. I think that's cool. But there are more connections. First, Let's hold for a second and see if there's any scholarly backing for the connection of Pentecost with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Keener, in his IVP Bible background commentary, writes, quote, Pentecost was celebrated as a feast of covenant renewal in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some later texts celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, end quote. I think these later texts he refers to are the Midrashic texts I quoted earlier. But Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish convert to Christianity and a biblical scholar, wrote, quote, According to unanimous Jewish tradition, which was universally received at the time of Christ, the day of Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which the Feast of Weeks, which is another way of saying the Feast of Pentecost, was intended to commemorate. The more conservative commentators disagree on the timing of the idea of the connection of Pentecost with Mount Sinai. J.B. Polehill, for example, he disagrees with the connection, writing in his commentary on Luke, quote, Luke himself did not make any such connection. He was referring here to the connection between the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the events of Pentecost. Quote, nowhere in Luke's account of Pentecost is any allusion made to the Torah, not in the narrative and not in Peter's speech. Since I already tipped my hand, you know I politely disagree. He's a capable exegete and shouldn't be lightly dismissed. 
Polhill contradicts Edersheim's claim by writing, quote, Rabbinic sources show that later Judaism celebrated the giving of the law at Sinai as a part of their Pentecostal liturgy, end quote. He recognized that later Judaism did draw the connection, but not at the time of Christ 150 or 200 years earlier. I think the interesting parallels already outlined, and one or two others that I will show in a moment, are enough to recognize that the 2nd and 3rd century rabbis didn't just come up with the Pentecost and Sinai connection on their own, in a vacuum. It makes sense to me that a traditional connection did exist, and it helps make more sense of what is going on at Pentecost. That is, at Pentecost, God is writing His law through His Spirit on the hearts of His disciples in order to spread the domain of God across the world as anticipated by most of the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. Two examples are Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. Let's take a look at those. Reading from Jeremiah 31, 31, quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27, I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So let's finish this up. Luke continues his narrative of the day of Pentecost, which is considered by most as the inauguration of the church. He says that after these devout men heard the disciples speaking in their own languages, confusion broke out. Others said that the disciples were drunk. Apparently, being filled with the Holy Spirit was misunderstood as being filled with too much wine in spirits. To the uninformed hearer, they sounded like they had the slurred speech of a drunken man. Peter stood up and explained to the crowd what was happening. He believed that what was occurring was an event anticipated by Joel, a prophet of Israel 800 years earlier. This event would equalize all people. God was going to give His Spirit to all people, not just the male prophets and the priests, but to the bondwomen working in the houses of Israel. Joel actually says in chapter 2, verse 30, that when this would occur, there would be a theophany of sorts, fire and smoke and darkness, things very similar to Sinai and Pentecost. 
While Peter had their attention, he goes on to retell the story of Jesus of Nazareth, claiming that those under the sound of his voice had rejected and killed him. He goes into some explanation of how he resurrected and why he came out of the grave before his body decayed. All good stuff, but for another day. His message crescendos in verse 36 when he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. It says that when Peter finished speaking to them, the men who heard him were, quote, cut to the heart. The Greek word used here means to prick or pierce, to prick through or pierce. It's used in the Septuagint translation of Psalm 109, verse 16, and it's used to mean that they put people to death. These men and women were stabbed through the heart. They wanted to know what they could do to rectify the actions they took against Jesus. Peter's response was, there's no hope for you. You killed the Son of God. Go to hell. Well, actually, that's not what he said. Peter's kind of like a new type of Levitical priest in this thing that God was doing in the church. He's ministering to people and giving them a sense of what God is up to. He's challenging their idolatry, the idolatry that led to the killing of Jesus. Not unlike the sons of Levi who were ordained to the work of God after they killed 3,000 of their closest kinfolk idolaters. But Peter didn't condemn them. He didn't throw them into the pits of hell. He didn't say there was no hope for them. But he provided them a happy path forward. He said to them that they should repent. That means that they should change their way of thinking. That they should be baptized or to commit themselves to the cause by leaving, so to speak, spiritual Egypt, passing through the Red Sea of the waters of baptism and entering into the wilderness. The wilderness is a, becomes kind of a, an image of a way of trusting God. He said if they would do those things, that they would be forgiven for the murder of God's Son, and they would receive the Holy Spirit promised by the prophets. They too would be spokespersons for God. So in verse 41, we find out how many received the word of Peter, how many acted on it. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter stabbed the people responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus with his words. But instead of 3,000 dying for their idolatry and rejection of Jesus, as when the law was given at Sinai, 3,000 were stabbed through the heart, repented, were baptized into the community of faith, and became agents of God's global expansion project. That's a retelling of the story. That informs us of the character of God. He's not pleased with the death of the idolater. He uses words and personal sacrifice to woo humanity into relationship. I understand how many of the biblical stories can be disturbing, But Jesus and his disciples had a different message. It resonated and harmonized with Israel's story, but its inclusive scope extended to all humanity and was seasoned with grace. What do you think? Do you see the connection between Mount Sinai 
and Pentecost? Do you see how those gathered at Mount Sinai heard the Ten Commandments in their own language? How Moses goes up, gets the tables of stone, returns to find them turned to idolatry, commissions a certain group of people to kill and 3,000 die, and the day of Pentecost when, according to the prophets, a day would come when the Spirit would enter into the people of God, the laws of God would be written on their hearts, not on tables of stone. They spill out and they begin to share those words of inspiration, men, women, into the streets of a crowded, festival-filled city. Devout men from all over the world, from every nation, are there to hear them and they hear them in their own language. They're convicted by the words that they hear. They're stabbed through the heart by the words of Peter and 3,000 are added to the church. To me, that's amazing parallels and a beautiful retelling of a tragic story. There are many others. And in future podcasts, we will review some of them. But I appreciate today you listening. And if you have any questions, send me a note and I'll be quick to respond. Thank you for listening. There are many other things you could do with your time, but I appreciate your investment in my podcast. The show notes for this and all other episodes and other links to source material can be found on my website at rob-massey.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with a friend. Thanks again.